0: The New Testament was written in its totality, not in part, but in its totality, to a people with no or very limited civil liberties, a people who had no prospect of getting anything like the liberties we enjoy, a people whose children and grandchildren also had no prospect of such liberties, no liberty. No prospect of liberty. And for the New Testament, it's no problem. Not only is it no problem, it is arguably seen as advantageous. right? Because it's the marginalized, powerless, persecuted church. She is a church uniquely poised to hear and to heed. The call into the mystery of fellowship with Christ crucified. Now I've mentioned before, I do not say this cavalierly. Nor do I wish this to be the case. But I often think, what would it take for us to hear something like the Beatitudes? The way it needs to be heard. Or something like 1 Peter or Hebrews. I suspect it would take ending up in a jail cell with nothing but a New Testament in your hands. Man, would we have a lot of aha moments reading the text in a context like that. Samuel Rutherford, the great 17th century Scottish pastor, theologian, said, I never knew by my nine years of preaching so much of Christ's love, as He taught me in Aberdeen by six months of imprisonment, right? nine years of preaching ministry, six months of imprisonment. So the church in the New Testament, stripped of all that we think is indispensable. It's very important to get that the New Testament church has nothing that we think is, disp- is you know that we think is you can't live without. They're stripped of everything that we think is indispensable. They're politically disenfranchised. They're hounded. They're harassed. That's the church of deep, rich, witness, inexpressible joy. And so we come this morning to the eighth and final beatitude. Some of you may have noticed I skipped the peacemakers. That's a scheduling issue. That's, Lord willing, will be after Easter. But tonight, this morning... It's the eighth, the final beatitude. This is the capstone of all the beatitudes. This one is perhaps the most searching and provocative of all of them. And when you're dealing with the Sermon on the Mount, that, this little piece of probing ethical teaching, that is saying something. This beatitude is so shocking. And I, my intention this morning is I'm going to be provocative. I'm just going to tell you this. Because this is a shocking bit of tea. Yes, we've heard it hundreds of times. But we've rarely been shocked by it. And this one is so shocking. Again, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which is itself a scandal. right? It's so shocking that it's repeated twice. Once in verse 10 and again in verses 11 and verse 12. It's as if it is so unbelievable. So counterintuitive. So unnatural that the Lord thought he would double down on it and emphasize it so that maybe, just maybe, we'd have ears to hear it. And we even have a little um, important rhetorical flourish here at the end. You might have noticed this as we've been reading it over the weeks. All the Beatitudes are in the third person. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who. But in verse 11, Jesus says pointedly, Blessed are you. He switches to the second person just to drive the point home inescapably, personally. And so all of this conspires together to tell us that we are dealing here with something of supreme importance. And with that, we'll make two points. They're in your bulletin. Persecution and joy. Persecution, joy. So first, persecution. The word that Jesus uses here for persecution can include, you know, imprisonment, inflicting pain, even death. But it can include very low-level things like economic pressure or social pressure, and pretty much anything in between. If we want to know what he has kind of directly in mind, we can look right at verse 11, and there he tells us it means verbal. He means verbal abuse, slander. Social ostracism, exclusion. Blessed are you when people insult you. Blessed are you when people insult you. When they persecute you, he says. When they falsely say all kinds of evil against you. This is the state of blessedness. In the parallel in Luke, Jesus says this, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, when they reject your very name as evil. Blessed are you. These are the people, then, our Lord says, who are flourishing. He pronounces this royal, kingly benediction on them. Happy are you. Now, we should note here a couple things about persecution. And there are things we don't want to hear. To so say a couple things about it. First, it is a normal mark of Christian existence. That doesn't mean it's always dramatic, it's not. It can be quite mundane, right? Persecution can be quite civilized. But it's a permanent state of affairs because in Genesis 3, God Himself imposed an enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that enmity exists all the way through redemptive history, all the way down to Revelation 22, where it's finally conquered. So enmity, hostility, warfare, strife, those are the conditions of the world. They are divinely imposed conditions. Now, of course, it doesn't happen all the time or with the same intensity. We face it in a kind of low but increasing level of intensity here. But as a rule, it's promised. And the church should expect it. And speaking collectively, the church has never lived without it. Right? More than half the world, just go get a map, more than half the Christians in the world today are experiencing high levels of persecution. After all, it was the church's Lord who warned us in John's Gospel. If the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. You do not belong to the world. I called you out of the world. That's why the world hates you, Jesus said. The world hates you because of the summons I have on your life. And then he says this. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Now there's a bible promise, right? That's on nobody's refrigerator. The basic shape of the church's life. And by that I mean the form her witness takes in the world is determined by Christ the persecuted and crucified one. Right? To think that the church is not going to follow in the way of Christ's cross and humiliation, this side of the resurrection, is grotesque. When was Jesus vindicated publicly in glory? At the resurrection. That's when you'll be vindicated publicly in glory. To expect it before then is to say the servant is in fact greater than his master. That's what Jesus is saying. The student, he goes on to say, is not above the teacher, nor is the servant above the master. It's enough for students to be like their teacher. Servants are to be like their masters. If the head of the house was called Beelzebub, how much more are the members of the household? So here's Jesus saying to his disciples, not only will they persecute you, they'll call you demonic. You should expect this. We are to expect to receive what Jesus received. Persecution and its absence is not a sign of victory. It is a cause for concern. The whole New Testament testifies this. Paul adds his sober witness to Jesus. All, he says, no exceptions, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be... It's not celebrated, I can tell you that. It's persecuted. Again, he says, to you it has been granted... Not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his name's sake. Or to the Thessalonians. No one should be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you, Paul says, that we were going to be persecuted. Not just in Philippi, not just in Thessalonica, not just in Palestine. Persecution is not an exception. It's the normal state of affairs. It's the design of God in Christ. It's the calling. It's concomitant with believing or with godliness. It's just that we American Christians have very clever ways of filtering these texts out. That's if we engage them at all. Or worse, we don't actually filter these texts. We end up inverting them. Standing them on their heads. And what does that do? That's a ripping of the cross, right, with its lacerated and persecuted one out of the center of the Christian witness in the world. Right? Sure, the cross is great. It's an unpleasant little thing. We have to get on the other side of it to the victory and the glory. Luther called people who thought like that contemptuously theologians of glory, and he said this, he said, the theologian of glory does not know God hidden in suffering. Right? The theologian of glory has to get around the suffering or past the suffering or over the suffering or tell you how much good the suffering is going to do. But what he doesn't see is God in the suffering, in the persecution. So Luther says this, the theologian of glory does not know God hidden in suffering. Therefore, he prefers works to suffering, glory to the cross, strength to weakness, wisdom to folly. This is the default condition of the human heart. We are all natural theologians of glory and not theologians of the cross. If you listen to the church, you might think that the text says, blessed are those who are not persecuted. Do everything in your power to make sure you never encounter persecution. After all, this is America. America. Or perhaps blessed are those who are in charge so they can deter- determine who gets persecuted or who gets favored or who gets punished. We don't really believe this text. It's not in our DNA. But Jesus is clear. It's not a hard text to understand. Brace yourself for it in all of its subtle forms. Right? Woe to us. Woe to us when everyone speaks well of us. That's what happened to false prophets. So the second thing to say about persecutions is this. Jesus doesn't say we're blessed if we're persecuted, period. We're not blessed if we're persecuted, Peter says, for wrongdoing or for meddling. Isn't that amazing? I've always been struck how Peter says, you know, you shouldn't be be punished for being a wrongdoer or a meddler. Just someone who's always sticking their nose in other people's business, maybe where it doesn't belong. Like, don't meddle. So we're not... Persecution by itself is not considered blessed. There are lots of ways you can draw fire, right? We could be rude or unpleasant or obnoxious or proud or judgmental or manipulative or unduly provocative. Even in the name of piety, especially in the name of piety. We are to suffer, the text says, because of righteousness. right? Righteousness. If you suffer as a Christian, Peter says, don't be ashamed. Praise God that you bear that name. So there's a kind of diagnostic question to our suffering, which is, if an unbeliever did the same thing you did, would they get the same kind of blowback? If if so, then you're not suffering as a Christian. So in this context, though, so it's very important to remember, we're in the Beatitudes. This is the capstone Beatitude. This is Jesus' closing Beatitude. And so what we should note here is that this means that the life of the Beatitudes is a life which generates and draws in persecution, right? Godliness guarantees persecution, Paul says, guarantees it. The Beatitudes generate persecution. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? People who are poor in spirit, they stand implicitly against, they condemn all the proud, rich, rich in spirit, mighty people. All the self-sufficient, vaunted, high, finger-pointing, moral scolds. Those who mourn sin, their own sin, the world's sin, the church's sin, they're going to be a living indictment on sin in all of its forms. Those who are meek are going to condemn by their very existence all the power-hungry, aggressive warriors of the age. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will refuse to accept the status quo. They will challenge the rich and the powerful. They will speak of a coming righteousness and justice which all of earth's utopian messianic kingdom builders despise. The merciful are going to insist that the rejected and the defiled and the unclean of the world get embraced in love and that all grudges and all petty feuds be settled and abandoned and that mercy triumphs over judgment. The pure in heart are going to condemn a deeply impure, sensuous, perverse, distracted culture. And what about the peacemakers seeking to reconcile loathsome and detestable and hated enemies? They'll face great hostility because war and enmity and division is the natural state of mankind. This is the righteousness that draws fire. What is called persecution because of righteousness is later in this text, in verse 11, called persecution because of me. Persecution because of Jesus. So the life of flourishing, the blessed life of the Beatitudes, what is it? It's an imitation of Christ, right? That's the sum in the heart and the soul, the heartbeat of Christian ethics imitating Christ crucified. The Christ who, in his suffering, left us a pattern. We heard that in the New Testament lesson, right? He left a pattern or an example for us. So it's very important to see this, right? I've mentioned this before, but it's important to repeat it. It is one thing to say, Jesus died for my sins, thanks be to God. It's another thing to see in the actual manner of of his suffering and the way of his handling of Pontius Pilate and his accusers and the people around him and his murderers. It's it's, it's a second thing to see all of that and the way he responded, or more, more appropriately, in fact, didn't respond. That, Peter says, is a pattern, a guide, an example for you. So it's not just that Jesus died for you. It's that in dying, he left you a pattern as to how to treat abusive, violent, public Political opposition and authority. Right? That's the point. He who committed no sin, Peter says, this is your example, who had no deceit in his mouth, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, what did he do? He entrusted himself to his father who judges justly. And like his prayers in Hebrews 5, he was heard and vindicated in the resurrection. He's the embodiment of the Beatitudes, Jesus is. In all of their splendor. And it's following in his way, which mysteriously provokes persecution. And so that brings me to the second point here, which is joy. Joy. Blessed are the the persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is, present tense, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, notice the bracket with the first beatitude. The first and last beatitudes have present tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is right now the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is right now the kingdom of heaven. So, What does possessing the kingdom of heaven look like right now in this age? Because Jesus is is bestowing a royal grant. He's bestowing the kingdom on these people. So what does it look like to possess the kingdom of God? It looks like persecution. That's shocking. It looks like persecution. I can't tell you how much kingdom talk I've heard in my Christian life. Building the kingdom, bringing the kingdom, working for the kingdom. You know what I haven't heard? This. Or anything close to this, for that matter. This is what the kingdom looks like. It's shocking. And to beat a dead horse, I don't think we accept it. You want to see the kingdom of heaven manifested in history? You know where you can find it? The church in Syria, which has had their ground into the dust for the last decade. Blessed are those Christians for theirs is right now the kingdom of heaven. We think the text should read blessed are those who have removed all persecuting forces from society through the healing waters of the gospel so they can live in unmolested peace for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have our own book of alternative beatitudes. Things we wish Jesus said, but actually didn't say. Beatitudes for Americans. Who is currently now possessing the kingdom? The persecuted ones. The martyrs. The dispossessed. The powerless. History's losers. No one's going to tell you this except Jesus, by the way. You can't hear this anywhere else. You have to go right to his lips. To partake of the kingdom now. Is to partake of tribulation. They're conjoined at the hip. Revelation chapter 1. I John. Your partner in the kingdom. And the tribulation. Which are in Jesus Christ. So what is yours in Jesus Christ right now? The kingdom. And the tribulation. The way to the eschatological kingdom. Acts 14. Is by passing through many tribulations. And the church's response to this persecution, and here I want to assure you, this is not a grim text. Here's the church's response. And notice it's an imperative. Jesus commands this. Rejoice and be glad. I'm very suspicious of happy gladness, like calls to happiness and gladness that are unwilling to go right through this dark tunnel. If you go through this, fine. We can talk about joy all you want. If you're going to skirt around this, then all the calls to joy and gladness are going to have a certain thinness to them. Only Jesus could say, yes, when they slaughter you, it's blessedness. Now rejoice. In Luke, it's even more vibrant. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. So let's stop and unpack this. I want to make a few qualifications here. It certainly doesn't mean we enjoy persecutions per se as if we're masochists. And I want to be clear. The liberties that we have as Americans are blessings. If I don't say this, somebody will come up and say I'm un-American. The liberties we have as Americans are, are blessings. They are not this blessing, though. Right? Jesus does not pronounce kingdom blessings, eschatological blessings on them. They don't get this benediction, but that doesn't mean they're not blessings. It just means they're not ultimate blessings. Right? States belong to this age. They belong to the old creation, not the new creation. There are no states in the new creation. There are no states in the eschaton. Nevertheless, these are good things. Just because a thing's not ultimate does not mean it's not a wonderful, a wonderful and good thing. We should fight for our liberties. The way to fight is the Beatitudes. That's how we should fight. In the spirit of the Beatitudes. And where those liberties are preserved or enlarged, we should give thanks. But let's talk about this. What happens when those liberties are eroded? When they're taken? When we lose battles? Well, certainly the text would say we don't sulk or we don't fume or we're not angry. We're not perpetual factories of grievance, as if Jesus said, wring your hands and moan and lament and start a political action committee. What happens when you start to lose your liberties and your civilization unravels? Well, if it's because of your righteousness, you're called to exalt and to celebrate and to leap for joy. Leap for joy in what is to all appearances a complete defeat. Yeah, that, that sounds that sounds pretty much like what I've been hearing for the last year. Rejoice. Why? Because great will be the earthly social and political fruit in this world from your suffering. Sorry, that was, that was from my alternative Beatitudes book, that last part. That's actually not in the text. Because great is your reward on earth? No, that's not there either. Great is your reward in heaven. pie in the sky with this Jesus guy. You know, what can we do with that, Jesus? Are we just supposed to roll over? I mean, after all, Lord, we're about to lose our whole civilization here. How about saying we'll have reward on earth and in heaven? Of course, he doesn't say that either. If heaven itself and seeing Christ who is in heaven is not the grand, domineering passion of our lives, then this text will be disappointing to us. We will have to find some other way around it. Right? Heaven itself, in Scripture, is this vivid, concrete place, infinitely more glorious, infinitely more interesting than 10 million worlds. Who would know? Who would know, right? Heaven is infinitely more interesting than 10 million worlds. It's the glory throne of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. It's the place where the radiance of the Triune Lord is seen in fullness. It's the place where Jesus, whom we love, is. It's the place where there are myriads upon myriads of fiery angelic beings. It's the place where the spirits of just men made perfect, from Adam to Noah to Moses to the Hebrew midwives to the prophets to the apostles to the martyrs. That's where they all are. I mean, I love you people, I do. But it's more interesting there. All the interesting people are there. Fourteen times as many people are dead than are alive on the earth right now. Heaven is the place the church is lifted up to in worship. That's where you're sitting right now. You have come to Mount Zion and to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come there by faith, later by sight. Persecution lays up reward. It lays up glory for the afflicted there in heaven and the recovery of heaven as a live, pulsating reality, transcending all earthly ends, is the dominant need of our time. The recovery of heaven as a live, pulsating reality, transcending all earthly ends, is the church's dominant need in this hour. And it's the prospect of having our reward there, our immeasurably great reward, that causes joy in persecution. Whether it be low-level rejection, which many of you face, hostility from co-workers, hostility from family members, hostility from extended family members, hostility in the culture, hostility in the workplace. That That all counts here. All the way from there to torture and death. Wherever your treasure is, There you will find your heart, Jesus said. Jesus does not think you can have your heart in two places. Lay up treasure in heaven and not on earth. For wherever your treasure is, there you will find your heart. And there you will find your joy. For the saints, the prospect of heaven is the mother of all joy. Especially joy in persecution. Listen to Calvin on this. He says this. Since in this life, the way of the godly is most miserable. He means miserable in the sense of attended by the miseries that are attached to sin. The way of the godly is most miserable. Christ duly lifts our thoughts up to the hope of heaven. Now he's talking about this beatitude. This is Calvin on our our verse our verses. Christ duly lifts our thoughts up to the hope of heaven. Once our minds are lifted up to heaven, he says... There unbounded ground for rejoicing opens up to us. This is actually why the church is not as joyful as she should be. Her minds are not lifted up to heaven where unbounded ground for joy is opened up to. Who talks like this? Heaven provides, Calvin says, unbounded ground for rejoicing. I think we have to acknowledge if we're going to make progress, that this seems absurd to us, or at least unreal. I think if the deep secrets of our heart could be told, we're offended by it. It sounds, it seems un-American to us, right? We, we're used to a situation where we have uh, the blessing of religious liberty. So we don't accept a state of affairs where joy is found in persecution. That's just not, that's not natural for us. And this is why the history of Sermon on the Mount interpretation, you might remember on the very first week I quoted an Orthodox Jewish scholar who has a whole book on the sermon. And he said the history of reading the sermon is this, I'm going to re-quote him. It's an attempt to domesticate everything in it that is shocking. You cite these verses to Christians and they'll start with, but what about? But it can't possibly be. But it's not this. And, And it can't be that. Are you saying this? Right? The whole history of this text is people attempting to domesticate everything shocking in it, everything demanding, everything uncompromising, and render it harmless. Right? We'll all go back after this service today to blessed are we if we do everything we can do to stop persecution. We'll just default to that before you get to your car. That'll be the effective reading of the text. But the apostolic church, again, the church, a church with no liberties, no prospect of liberties, they grasp these things in a way we can scarcely imagine. In Acts, when the apostles suffered, they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They didn't immediately lawyer up. I don't know. They probably should have got lawyers. You know, our instincts are so profoundly affected by our cultural situation that we don't even realize it. We don't even realize that the New Testament is written to a people in a, just from a radically different vision of the world. So when it comes to, to persecution, to verbal and social hostility, to marginalization, to being stripped of power, Jesus not only calls for non-retaliatory love, and let me interject another qualifier here. I, I need to say these things. This is not capitulation. This is resistance. Holy, Christ-like resistance. That's what the Beatitudes are. This is the form Christian opposition and resistance to evil in the world takes. And Jesus not only calls for non-retaliatory love, he goes beyond non-retaliation and says, Rejoice! Rejoice! Your power has been stripped away. You've been marginalized. It's stunning. And it cuts across the grains of our deepest instincts. We rejoice in our suffering, Peter says, because we have not an earthly, but a heavenly inheritance, safe and secure from all the vicissitudes of American politics. People act like their inheritance is fluctuating like the stock market, depending on what the latest social trends are. We have an imperishable inheritance, undefiled, unfading, kept and reserved by the power of God in heaven for you. So far did this ethos impinge on the early Christians. That the book of Hebrews tells us that they joyfully accepted the seizure of their property. It doesn't say they were resigned to it. Well, guys, it looks like we lost in the courts. It's a sad and bitter day, but our property is going to be taken from us. I guess we can live with that. Praise be to God. No, it says they joyfully accepted the seizure of their properties. You're going to take my property? Right, here, here, here's the keys to my summer house. Get, take that too. They joyfully accepted the seizure of their property. There's very few texts that will tell you the distance between the ethos of the early church and the American church than that. If only they had a second amendment, right? They could have shot and killed the people who came for their properties. That would have been the Christian thing to do. Why did they do this? Because the hope of heaven opens up unbounded ground for rejoicing. Because the text says in the very next phrase in Hebrews, because they knew they had a better and an abiding possession. I got a better house. Bonhoeffer said this kind of suffering is a certificate of Christian authenticity. And this is why this is so convicting to me. I don't believe I would joyfully accept the seizure of my property. I'm not there. Luther called the church the company of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. It's a sign that you possess the kingdom. And our text highlights as it concludes, this suffering places you in really good company. Notice how Jesus ends this beatitude. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what's the Lord saying? He's saying, look, this has been going on for thousands of years. In heaven, the great fourth century hymn, the Tideum, tells us that adoring the triune God is, quote, the glorious company of the apostles the goodly fellowship of the prophets and the noble army of the martyrs. That's a magnificent hymn, boy. I encourage you to look at it. The Tadam, it's a fourth century hymn. You are now called, we are now called to take our place in that train of prophetic witnesses. Jesus links you to the prophets here. You should notice that. For so they, the word so is in the same way that they're going to treat you. So they treated the prophets who were before you. That means you stand in the line of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Habakkuk. You stand in the line of the prophets. Brace yourself for the same reception they got. That's what Jesus is saying to us. Rejoice that you are called to imitate Jesus, the persecuted one who for the joy set before him endured the cross and is now seated at the right hand of God. Rejoice, as our call to worship said, inasmuch as you partake of the sufferings of Christ, that you might be overjoyed, have even more abundant joy when his glory is revealed. It's astonishing. I submit that we don't believe it. Flourishing, blessed, happy are those who are persecuted. For theirs is right now, in their persecution, the kingdom, the royal authority and dominion of heaven itself. And there, in heaven, their reward is great. Amen.